Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. This is part two of our episode covering the 1905 Tour of England. Part one was released last week and covers the first two tests of the five test series. We resume with the series 1-0 in England's favour. Following the second test, the Australians departed for a quick stopover in Ireland, defeating Dublin University comfortably. A close loss to Essex followed despite a 10-wicket haul from Labour, whilst 100 from Noble and 7 wickets from Cotter in the first innings allowed the Australians to bounce back with an innings victory over Warwickshire. The final match before the third test featured a trumper century as rain saved Gloucestershire from defeat. Despite Cotter showing form in the tour games, the Australians went into the third test unchanged. The English ended up making four changes. Three of these were forced, with McLaren suffering from rheumatism, Rhodes a damaged finger and Arnold a sore knee, whilst Jones was dropped from the side. In their place came George Hurst and Colin Blythe, both experienced Test players, whilst two debutants joined them, David Denton, a batsman from Yorkshire, and Arnold Warren, a fast bowler from Derbyshire. The conditions were cooler and drier than expected in Yorkshire, but the pitch was still recovering from recent rain. Despite this, Jackson, who won his third consecutive toss, chose to bat, opening with Hayward and Fry. The two batted steadily in conditions that suited the spinners of Australia, with Armstrong and Noble getting conspicuous turn from the soft pitch. However, the openers were up to the task, finding gaps regularly and moving the score past 50. Fry had moved to 32 and looked set for a big score when a double change to Laver and McLeod caused havoc. McLeod had Fry caught at point trying to drive on the up. Newman Tildesley then inside edged the ball onto his stumps from Laver to be out for a duck, whilst Debutant Denson misjudged a slower ball from McLeod and spooned a catch to mid on without scoring. When Hayward was dismissed shortly after for 26, becoming McLeod's third victim, the English had lost 4 for 13. Jackson and Hurst stayed aside, taking the total from 64 to 88 at lunch. The Australians were well on top. Following the break, though, the English pair started to take the game away from the Australians. Hurst played powerfully, pulling the ball hard and piercing gaps with forceful drives. It was Jackson, though, that was most dominant. Despite the slowness of the pitch, he managed to hit some strong cut shots whilst also driving well. The two added a nice partnership of 69 runs either side of lunch before Hurst attempted a big pull shot off Laver, only for Trumpet to take a good catch in the outfield. He departed for 35 and was replaced by Bozenquay. Jackson nearly departed from an edge that fell just short of slip. Soon after, he brought up his 50, made in just over 100 minutes. Bozenquay provided good support as the total moved past 150. Armstrong was the most challenging bowler, but the English were up to the task of keeping him out. The partnership went past 50 and brought up the 200 just before T. Here, Darling turned to Duff, who managed to get the breakthrough right on the stroke of T, bowling Bozenquay for 20. Following T, Jackson continued in the same vein as before. He found willing partners, putting on 31 with Lily, followed by 51 with Hay, with both batsmen making 11. It was during his partnership with Hay that Jackson brought up his century, his fourth in tests. When Hay was out, caught by Noble off Armstrong, the total had moved to 8 for 282. Warren helped take the total of 301 before he was run out, whilst Blythe was bowled by Armstrong for a golden duck, ending the innings. Jackson remained undefeated on 144, his highest test score. He had batted for nearly five hours and hit 18 boundaries, a difficult feat on a large ground with a slow outfield. He had led his side to a strong position as the day closed at the end of the English innings. McLeod was the pick of the bowlers for 3 for 88, whilst Armstrong and Labour both claimed two apiece. A bright day greeted the Australians as they commenced their innings on day two. 
Trumper and Duff started quickly, moving the score onto 26 before Trumper chopped a ball from Warren onto his stumps for eight. Wickets two and three came soon after, with Hill hitting a poor stroke back to Hurst to be out for seven, whilst Noble was caught at slip for two from a Warren ball that rose and caught the edge of the bat. Warren was a difficult prospect to face, generating good pace and bounce from a long run-up. At 3-36, Armstrong joined Duff and the two rebuilt the Australian innings. Duff played many late cuts through the slips, whilst Armstrong used his height to drive effectively on the up. The two put on a 50-run partnership and within sight of the 100 before Duff was caught behind off Bly for 48. Darling took the score past the century mark before departing for five, becoming Warren's third victim. Hopkins joined Armstrong and the two upped the rate of scoring, racing the total past 150. Hopkins looked set for a big score, but was caught behind off Jackson for 36. Gregory replaced him, but just on the stroke of lunch, attempted a short single to Denton and was run out. The Australians went to the break at 7 for 166. Following lunch, McLeod joined Armstrong and the two looked to take the total closer to the English. Armstrong went past 50 as they moved the score on to 191, but both then fell on that score, with Hayclean bowling McLeod for 8, whilst Armstrong was caught at slip off Warren for 66. The final wicket fell soon after, with Warren bowling Labour to finish with the excellent figures of 5 for 57 on debut. Only three Australians had reached double figures as the innings ended on 195, conceding a lead of 106. There's still more than half the day left as the English commenced their second innings. The Australians looked to restrict the English scoring as much as possible, in essence playing for a draw. McLeod and Armstrong began for the Australians, instructed to bowl wide outside off stump and leg stump respectively to limit the ability of Fry or Hayward to make quick runs. As such, only 40 runs came from the first hour. Despite this, the batsmen were in little danger as tea was taken. Following tea, the match continued in the same fashion. Noble eventually replaced McLeod, but Armstrong continued on bowling leg breaks wide outside off stump. The English total continued to rise slowly, with 80 runs coming up after 100 minutes. Eventually, Fry was caught behind, trying to hit out at Armstrong for 30. He was replaced by Tildesley. The new batsman made good use of his feet to get to the pitch of Armstrong's deliveries, and was not as restrained as the openers, although he was lucky to survive a caught and bold chance one on 18. Meanwhile, Hayward brought up his half-century and began to copy his partner's technique. This eventually brought about his downfall, as he was stumped for 60 off Armstrong, departing with a score at 126. Denton joined Tildesley, and the two batted out the rest of the day, scoring 43 runs in the final 25 minutes of play. Tildesley ended the day 62 not out, as the English score sat at 2 for 169, with an imposing lead of 275 heading into the final day. There was a possibility of rain in the morning, however this cleared for play to commence on time. Denton was out for 12 caught at deep square leg with only one run added to the overnight score, becoming Armstrong's third victim. Jackson joined Tildesley and again looked to force the scoring. The Australians' negative tactics restricted them somewhat. The two took the score past 200, but Jackson skied one from Armstrong and was called by Duff for 17. This brought Hurst to join Tildesley. The batsmen were finally able to get on top of the bowling and the scoring rate increased rapidly. Both batsmen were missing consecutive balls, however, with Armstrong dropping both at slip off Noble. Tildesley, who was 82 at the time, went on to register a century, his third in test, before he was immediately stumped off Armstrong. His hundred had been made in just over two and a half hours and included 12 boundaries. Bosanquay joined Hurst and the two put on a further 37 runs before Jackson called them in just before 1pm. The English innings ended on 5 for 295, with Hurst on 40 and Bosanquay 22 not out. Armstrong was the pick of the bowlers, taking all the wickets to fall and claiming his first five-wicket haul in test matches. This left the Australians with 402 to win the match, or just over five hours to save the game, the same scenario that faced them at Trent Bridge in the first test. With a win almost impossible, the Australians looked to bat for the draw. They suffered a blow in the second over, with Trumper gone before a run was scored, caught in the slips off Warren. 
It could have been worse for the Australians, but Hayward missed Hill at slip before the score reached double figures. Hill and Duff put on 36 runs for the second wicket before they were separated, with Hurst bowling Duff for 17. This brought Noble to the crease. He batted with dogged determination in attempting to save the match for his side. The two took the score under 64 before Hill couldn't get over a cut shot and found Warren in gully off Hay. Armstrong was then nearly clean bowled by Hay, with the ball missing the stumps by a whisker. After this, Noble and Armstrong settled in, keeping out the bowling and taking time out of the game. The two took the Australians past 100 and looked set to have saved the match. At this point, Jackson turned to the left armers of Blythe. He struck, catching Armstrong LBW for 32, whilst Darling followed four runs later when he was bowled by the same bowler. Australia was now five wickets down with over 90 minutes left, plenty of time for the English. Hopkins preferred to hit the ball hard and was successful for a while, but he became Blythe's third victim when he too was bowled, having made 17. This brought Gregory in to join Noble. The experienced pair managed to see out the next 40 minutes, although Noble was lucky to survive with Blythe missing a caught and bowled chance when he was on 55. He was finally undone by Bosanquay, having made 66 in almost three hours, but this left the Australians with only three wickets left and half an hour still to play. However, McLeod joined Gregory and managed to see out the rest of the match, successfully appealing against the light with five minutes remaining. The Australians had got away with a draw for the second consecutive test, and with two tests remaining, was still a chance at levelling or even winning the series. This marked the end of the test career of Bernard Bosanquay. Although only playing seven tests, his creation of the wrong one had a profound effect on cricket going forward, adding to the mystery and allure of leg spinners that persist until the present day. He was dropped in the fourth test for poor form, despite being the match winner in the first, and, for all intents and purposes, never bowled the wrong end again as his control slipped. Business interests began to take precedence, and he only played county cricket rarely after 1905, living until 1936 when he passed away at the age of 58. The Australians demonstrated good form in the tour matches between the third and fourth tests. They won by an innings against Hampshire, with Hill, Noble and Gregory scoring centuries, and Cotter taking nine wickets for the match. Cotter followed this up with six weeks to complete a victory over Derbyshire. The match against Somerset was drawn, with Armstrong scoring a mammoth 303 not out, against an attack which included famed fast bowler Tom Richardson in his final first-class appearance. After two matches in Scotland, the Australians made their way to Manchester for the fourth test at Old Trafford. The Australians were forced into two changes, with Gregory and Hopkins both sustaining injuries. Their place was taken by Gers for his first test of the tour, and Cotter, whose performances in the county games could no longer be denied. The English made multiple changes. McLaren, Rhodes and Arnold, who had all missed the previous test through injury, came back into the side. They also introduced two debutants, with right-handed batsman Reggie Spooner and right-arm fast bowler Warren Brealey, both from the county that played at Old Trafford, Lancashire. Out went Bosanquay, Denton, Warren, Blythe and Hay. On a clear day, Jackson continued his good luck at the toss and chose the bat on a slow pitch, who was still recovering from rain that fell days previously. McLaren and Hayward opened the batting, facing Cotter and McLeod. Cotter got some balls to rear up from a length, whilst McLeod bowled his usual dry line. This frustrated McLaren, who eventually tried to hit out, but was well caught by Hill at deep point. Tildesley joined Hayward, and the two batted together for almost an hour. Tildesley was much more restrained than the previous test, but just as he looked to be upping the scoring rate, he inside-edged the ball from Labour onto his stumps to be out for 24. Fry joined Hayward at 2 for 77, and they batted without further loss for the final 25 minutes before lunch, with Fry only registering one run in that time. Hayward had moved past 50 as the score sat at 2 for 96 at the break. Following lunch, Fry continued at a similar slow pace. The two took the score past 100 and registered a 50 partnership, but Fry was then bowled for 17 by Armstrong, having spent over an hour at the crease. Jackson joined Hayward and was shortly after missed by Armstrong at slip off Noble when he was on 70. 
He then survived a something opportunity when on 76, before finally being out on 82, caught by Gerzoff McLeod. He was the fourth wicket to fall, with debutant Spooner joining Jackson with a score at 4 for 176. Here, the scoring rate started to increase, with both batsmen handling the bowling comfortably. The Australians were missing a bowler who could take advantage of damp pitches, like Turner and Trumbull had done in series past. As such, the batsmen batted with little fear. Spooner on debut was warmly supported by the home crowd as he drove confidently through the offside, whilst Jackson continued his good form of the series. The score was well past 200 as tea was taken. Following the tea break, the run scoring increased, with 50 runs coming in only 30 minutes of play. Both batsmen brought up half centuries and took the score past 300 before Spooner was out caught and bowled to McLeod for 52. He was replaced by Hurst, who kept the runs flowing in partnership with his captain. Hurst made 25 until he was well caught left-handed low down by a laver off McLeod in the shadow of Stumps. Jackson, who was on 98 at the time, brought up his century, the second of the series and fifth of his career, in the final over of the day. It had been a chanceless knock and once again set the English up in a dominant position for the remainder of the test, with a score now at 352, with four wickets remaining. Day two commenced after a brief shower. The non-out batsmen, Jackson and Arnold, added 30 runs to the overnight score before Jackson skied a ball from a cloud and was out for 113, having batted for almost four hours and hitting 12 boundaries. Arnold followed for 25 five runs later when he was run out. The score was now 8 for 387 as Lily joined Rhodes. Any chance of a quick finish to innings was dashed as the two batsmen played busy cricket, scoring off every over they faced in the 45-minute partnership, putting on 59 runs. Eventually, Darling turned to Noble, who struck twice in an over, first trapping Lily LBW for 28, before Brearley was caught for a four-ball duck. Rhodes was left 27 not out, as the English posted an imposing 446. McLeod was the pick of the bowlers with five wickets, but they had cost him 125 runs. The chances of an Australian victory were slim already as they commenced their innings. Noble opened with Trumper, looking to bat out the half an hour until lunch. Trumper commenced with two glorious boundaries, but then edged a faster ball from Brearley to slip. New Batsman Hill fell in the next over for a duck, with the left-handed playing an atrocious shot off Arnold to be caught by Fry. Six runs later, Noble was clean bowled by Brearley from a ball that broke back in at pace. The Australians were now three for 27. Duff and Armstrong managed to see out till lunch, with their three best bats already in the sheds, a huge task awaited the rest of the batsmen. Following lunch, things seemed much better for the Australians as Duff was out for 11, giving Brearley his third wicket. This brought Darling to the crease. He and Armstrong settled somewhat, although Darling was dropped at long off on six by Hayward. The two pushed the score onto 88 before Rhodes was introduced to the attack. Here, Armstrong had no answer for the wily left armour, attempting to hit his first five balls for no result before being clean bowled on the six. He departed for 29 and was soon after followed by Gers, who failed to trouble the scorers after being bowled by Arnold. Six wickets were now down for 93 runs as McLeod joined Darling. McLeod dropped anchor as Darling did the bulk of the scoring, dealing almost exclusively in boundaries. He hit many shots in the air and was missed a further three times after the drop at six, but rode his luck to bring up his half-century. With the score having moved to 146, Brearley brought about the breakthrough, bowling a McLeod for six. Without addition to the score, Darling fell in the next over, his luck finally run out and being caught in the outfield off his opposite number, Jackson. He'd made 73 with 13 boundaries. The Australians were now eight down for 146. Through plucky batting, the final two wickets managed to put on a further 50 runs, with 11 from Cotter, 24 from Labour, and 16 not out from Kelly. But the Australians still finished their innings 249 behind on 197. Brearley on debut was the pick of the bowlers with four wickets, whilst Rhodes, Arnold and Jackson each claimed two. With such a large deficit, England had no hesitation in enforcing the follow-on and pushing for a serious clinching win.
The Australians, though, started much better in their second innings. Reverting to the usual openers of Truppler and Duff, they batted comfortably on a pitch that had flattened out. Runs came easily, putting on over 50 yet better than run a minute before Trumper was dismissed to 30, trapped LBW by Rhodes. Duff was joined by Hill, and the two batsmen managed to continue on for the remaining hour before stumps, taking the score on to 1 for 118, with Duff on 58 and Hill 26. They trailed by 131 runs, but with the pitch being docile and 9 wickets remaining, there was still an opportunity to save the match. As was so often the case in England, the weather would have other ideas. Ram began at 8am on the morning of day 3 and continued until 11, with play being delayed an hour until midday. This changed the complexion of the pitch, making it far more difficult for batting. Wickets started falling almost immediately when Duff departed for 60, with Spooner taking a well-judged catch at point off Brearley. One run later, Hill was out off Arnold for 27. Only four runs have been added to the overnight total with both set batsmen departing. This set the tone for the innings as the Australians were unable to develop any substantial partnerships. Noble and Armstrong put on 11 before Armstrong was out, with Darling falling in the same over for a duck, superbly caught low down by Rhodes at slip. Both fell to Brearley. Noble became Brearley's fourth wicket when he fell for 10 shortly afterwards, with a score now at 6 for 146, with Kelly departing without a further run being added. The last three wickets added 23 runs, but the innings was all wrapped up after only 80 minutes on day three. Brearley was the pick of the bowlers with his four wickets, well supported by Arnold and Rhodes who claimed two each. With the Australian innings ending on 169, they lost the test by an innings and 80 runs. To add insult to injury, rain fell from the scheduled lunch break, meaning if they had held out a little longer, they would have gotten away with a draw. As such, the victory gave the English an unbeatable 2-0 lead in the series, with only the final test at the Oval to go. The Australians took out some of their frustration at losing the series on the counties, winning three of the five matches played between the fourth and fifth tests. Hill, Trumper, Noble and McLeod all scored centuries during these matches, with Noble hitting an unbeaten 267 against Sussex, whilst Cotter with 12 for 34 against Worcestershire delivered the standout bowling performance. With Hopkins having recovered from his injury, he took the place of Gers for the final test, whilst the English would go in unchanged. For something different, Jackson won the toss and chose to bat, marking the fifth time in the series he had done just that. McLaren and Hayward opened up on a pleasant pitch facing Cotter and Noble. Cotter improved his links considerably since the start of the tour and was much more of a threat, catching the edge of McLaren's bat and having him caught at slip for six. Tildesley came in at three and for a time looked comfortable, but was then clean bowled for 16 by Cotter. The Australians had done well to have the English at two for 32, but this was the last breakthrough for a while as Fry combined with Hayward. As Cotter began to tire and the other bowlers posed minimal threat, the two were able to build a partnership with very little difficulty and took the total at lunch to just over 100. The two batsmen picked up where they left off after the break and raised their partnership to a century stand. At this point, Hayward, who had made his way to 59, attempted a hook shot off Hopkins, only to tread on his stumps. He departed at 3 for 132 and was replaced by Jackson. Any chance of more wickets was dashed as the two batsmen played resolute cricket. Fry, who brought up his 50, was playing without error and giving the opposition no chance. His score continued to rise through powerful drives and late cuts. Jackson continues excellent form from throughout the series, taking the game away from the Australians. Eventually, Fry brought up his century, his first in tests just prior to tea. The English went to the break in a commanding position with over 250 runs on the board with seven wickets in hand. Following tea, things turned a bit for the Australians. Fry, who had reached a chanceless 144, was finally bowled by Cotter. He batted for three and a half hours and hit 23 boundaries. This led to a mini collapse, with Spooner following shortly after for a duck in the same fashion as Fry, whilst Hurst could only manage five before being caught by Noble off Labour. Even Jackson was defeated, caught by Armstrong skying a rash shot off Labour. 
In the hour post-tea, the English had lost 4 for 39, giving the Australians a sniff. However, Arnold and Rhodes combined at 7 for 322 and batted out the final hour of the day without further loss, taking the score under 381 at stumps. Conditions were good on the commencement of day two, and the final wickets of the English decided to hit out. Rhodes fell early in the second over, adding six runs to his overnight score to end on 38. Arnold continued to hit, moving his score to 40 before he was caught by Trumper, whilst Lily was the last out for 17. Cotter claimed all three wickets to end with 7 for 148 for the innings, his first five wicket haul in tests, and reward for the improvements he displayed over the tour. However, the English had added 49 runs in the 25 minutes it took for their innings to complete, finishing on 430. Facing another imposing English total, the Australians were again under pressure from the beginning. This was too much for Trumper, who edged the ball through the slips of four, only to be bowled next ball by Brearley. This left the hard work up to his long-time batting partner, Reg Duff. Reginald Alexander Duff, also known as Reggie, was born on the 17th of August 1878 in the Botanical Gardens, Sydney. He played his grade cricket for North Sydney, making his debut for New South Wales in 1898-99, but didn't stand out. The next season, New South Wales actually intended to pick Reg's older brother Walter for a match against Victoria. However, the invitation was sent to Reg instead. Reg went on to score 75 and 76 in the match and cemented his place in the side. A year later, he would make his test debut, scoring a century from number 10 when Darling held back his best batsman due to a wet pitch. It was on the 1902 tour of England where he established himself as Trumper's opening partner and, despite Trumper's brilliance, was well regarded for his aggressive batting at times outshining his more fancied opening partner. There were rumours of issues with alcohol, but the 27-year-old was at the peak of his powers and was about to play one of his finest test innings. Duff took the attack to the bowling, flaying the ball through the covers. His partner Hill struggled, however, and eventually edged the ball to Rhodes at slip. This brought Noble to the crease, joining Duff with the score on 44. The two batted in contrasting styles. Noble was resolute in defence, whilst Duff continued his aggressive style. He particularly enjoyed the pace from Brearley and Arnold and used it to find the boundary on multiple occasions. He raised his 50 and continued in the same fashion, with a score racing past 100. As the end of the session approached and Duff had moved to 78, he skied the ball straight into the air. It should have been a simple catch, but McLaren and Hurst collided trying to take the ball, saving Duff. Lunch was taken soon after, with Duff on 82 and Noble on 12. Little change following lunch in either batsman's game. Duff moved into the 90s whilst Noble went into the 20s. Finally, Noble's defence gave way, edging a ball from Jackson to McLaren at slip. He'd made 25 in a 115-run partnership with Duff. Duff, joined by Armstrong, brought up his century soon after, his second in tests. He dominated a 55-run stand with Armstrong, who was out for 18 with a score on 214. Duff was missing the outfield by Hayward when he was on 134, but his luck finally ran out when he was caught and bowled by Hurst, having made 146, his highest test score. He batted for just over three hours and hit 21 boundaries in doing so. Darling, who came at the fore of the Armstrong wicket, then watched as further two wickets fell quickly, with Hopkins falling for one before McLeod made a duck. Darling was in fine form, scoring at a run a minute and hitting nine boundaries, including one shot right out of the ground. When he was out for 57, the Australian total had moved to eight for 293. Kelly, who had provided good support to Darling, then drove the innings past 300. He lost Cotter for only six, but found a willing partner in Laver, with whom he put on 59 for the last wicket. Kelly was last out, run out for 44, with Laver 15 not out. The Australians responded with a total of 363, their highest innings of the series. Brearley had followed up his good performance in the previous test with another five-wicket haul, whilst Hurst had claimed three. The English only had one over to face before the day ended. 
They sent Arnold in as night watchman, but he only lasted five balls before being bowled by Cotter for a duck. That ended the day's play, with the English having a lead of 67. With only one day remaining, unless there was a major collapse, there was little chance of a result. Australian hopes were raised early though, as Armstrong claimed two quick wickets, with McLaren caught by Kelly for six, whilst Haywood was trapped LBW for two. This left the English three for 13. Furthermore, Lilly was unable to bat, having suffered a split finger keeping the day before. For the first time in the series, England was in a spot of bother. Tildesley and Fry combined for a while, but Fry fell for 16 with a score at 44, the victim of a spectacular one-handed catch at long off by Armstrong off Noble. It could have been five down, but a confident appeal from Cotter for a court behind off Tildesley was turned down by the umpire, much to the chagrin of the Australians. Tildesley and Jackson then combined to put on 55 runs before Jackson was out shortly before lunch, bowled by Cotter. Spooner joined Tildesley and lunch was taken shortly after, with the English having taken their score to 524, a lead of 191. Following lunch, Spooner survived a very confident appeal for LBW. This rejection seemed to take the wind out of the Australian sails and the two batsmen took full advantage. They played highly entertaining cricket, hitting out at all the bowling, even taking Armstrong for 40 runs in 7 overs. The first time all series that any English batsman had got on top of the Australian leg spinner. Tildesley moved from lunch score of 56 to a century, while Spooner played exciting cricket in composing 79. When Spooner was caught at long off, the two had pulled on 158 runs in only 90 minutes. Jackson declared the innings closed at this point, leaving Tildesley on 112 not out with 14 boundaries. The English innings finished at 6 for 261, a lead of 328. There was only two and a half hours left in the match, with little chance of a result. With Duff ill, Hopkins opened with Trumper. Hopkins was run out for 10 early on, whilst Trumper played some good strokes in compiling 28 before a rising ball from Brearley caught his edge. Noble could only manage three before Hill and Armstrong combined to take the Australians towards safety. Hill was dismissed within 20 minutes of six, but when Darling and Armstrong reached the top of the hour, stumps were drawn. The Australian innings ended on 4 for 124, leaving the series result at 2-0 to England, their second consecutive Ashes win. After a period of Australian domination, the combination of the English prioritising test cricket over county cricket, the declining quality of the Australian bowlers, and the appointment of a fine captain in Jackson had all come together to give England one of their most dominant displays. Partly due to the luck of their captain in winning the toss in all five tests, but also due to their superior batting, they were never behind in any of the games and could always force the play, with rain the only thing keeping them from winning more of the tests. The differences in the averages showed the gap between the two sides. Eight Englishmen, Jackson, Tildesley, Fry, McLaren, Rhodes, Spooner, Hurst and Hayward, all averaged over 30, whilst they scored six centuries between them, with two each to Jackson and Tildesley, and one each to McLaren and Fry. By comparison, the Australians only had Duff and Armstrong average over 30, whilst Duff scored their only century in the final match. The biggest disappointments were the form of Trumper, Hill and Noble. Expected to score most of the runs, they could only average around 20 apiece, and scored only three half-centuries between them, a far cry from their performances on previous tours. Furthermore, the Australians lacked incisive bowling. In particular, there was little in the way of variety. Cotter wasn't trusted until later in the tour. Saunders was left at home and, other than Armstrong's leg breaks, which were often used with a very negative leg stump line, the remaining bowls were right arm medium or off-break bowlers. With Noble's decline as a bowler, no one was at the level of the quality bowlers of the past, making it difficult for the Australians to get wickets. The Australians still had eight matches following their final test, winning four, including a nail-biting one-wicket victory against an English 11. Across the 35 matches, they won 15 and only lost three, although two of those were the tests. The performances in the first-class matches were generally better for the Australians than in the tests, with Armstrong living up to his potential with 1,900 runs at 50, as well as 122 wickets at 18. 
Noble led all the batsmen with 2,053 runs, including six centuries, whilst Trumper, Hill, Darling and Duff all scored over 1,000 runs. Cotter and Labour both took over 100 wickets. This series marked the end for many players. Jackson, having won the Ashes, retired from tests. His 20 tests from 1893 had all been played at home, with his business commitments leaving him no time to tour, but he had scored 1,415 runs with five centuries at 48.15, the highest average of anyone who played more than five tests in that time. He served as a Member of Parliament for 11 years between 1915 and 1926. He was President of the MCC in 1921 and became President of Yorkshire in 1938 after the death of Lord Hawke, until his own death in a road accident at age 77 in 1947. The Australians also saw many of their players take the final bow on the international stage. Darling had been recalled from retirement for this tour, finally ended his test career, saying touring was unfair on his wife. He made 1,657 runs in his 34 tests, 21 of which he was captain. Following his retirement from first-class cricket in 1908, he focused on his Tasmanian farm, eventually becoming involved in politics. Elected to the Tasmanian Parliament in 1921, he served there until his death in 1946. He is recognised as one of the finest captains Australia has produced. JJ Kelly, Australia's wicketkeeper since the retirement of Blackham, also ended his career. He suffered a blow over his heart during the fourth test and stopped playing on medical advice. He had 43 catches and 20 stumpings across his 34 tests, numbers which compared favourably with his predecessor. This also marked the end for Charlie McLeod, having played 17 tests across 11 years. A handy player was often called to fill roles in the side. The saddest end, though, was for Reg Duff. Only 27 when the tour finished, it was expected that he would be years ahead of him in top-level cricket. However, his alcohol addiction started to affect him more and more. He appeared intermittently over the next few years in New South Wales and was 12th man for one of the Sydney tests on the next England tour, but that was the end of him in cricket. He would die unmarried and childless in 1911 at the age of 33, with a death put down to alcohol poisoning. Over 100 cricketers, including Trumper and Hill, attended his funeral, with his grave being close to that of the first Australian test captain, Dave Gregory, who would pass away in 1919. Because of the unfortunate end to his career, he became the first player to score centuries in their first and last tests, a feat only accomplished by four other players since, including Australians Bill Ponsard and Greg Chappell. The Australian players' animosity to the newly established Board of Control back home was on display when, in a meeting with the MCC at Lords, Darling, Labor and Noble stated that, in their view, the board was not representative of Australian cricket and should not be allowed to run tours to England until they widen their membership. This led the MCC to decline the board's invitation to send a stride to Australia in 1906-07. Further, to stop the board from gaining access to the financial records of the tour, Labor paid out the players' tour bonuses of £900, which is over 250000 Australian dollars in today's money, before the players had left England. This decision of Labor's made the board even more focused on gaining financial control of future tours, which would lead to conflict with the players. Despite the favourable financial outcome, the second successive series loss was a serious dent on the prestige of Australian cricket. With so many players playing their final test matches in this series, the Aussies would have to turn to a new breed of cricketers in order to regain their hold over the Ashes. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.